0: Welcome to Generation Travel Radio, where we share the stories of people from a diverse range of generations and backgrounds whose lives have been enriched academically, professionally, and personally by international experiences. Hello, and welcome to an episode of Generation Travel Radio. My name is Kelly Davis, and I'm here with Erin Morris, and we're super excited today to bring to you our guest, Eric Baki. So Eric is a colleague of mine. We both work at Menlo College and he primarily focuses on the success of students in general, the academic success. He is in charge of the English learners program at Menlo College. But he's so much more than just his day job, which by the way is 40 hours plus a week. So I'm not really sure how he incorporates everything else about him. But Eric has traveled extensively, which is really impressive to kind of see it all written out and I'm excited to dig into that a little bit today but he also has an artistic side he's very much an artist and that's something he works really hard to maintain and practice outside of his work so without further ado Eric welcome to the podcast we're so happy to have you here we'd love to have you start off by telling us what your personal mission is
1: great hi Kelly hi Aaron Thank you for having me. And my personal mission, I hadn't given this a lot of thought, so I'll, I'll start with some boilerplate about wanting to be a better human being. But in fact, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, given our current political climate It causes self-reflection. And then I'd, uh, I'd like to keep working on, you were talking about some of the things I'm working on, but particularly art, I'd like to be doing that for another 20 years or so and uh, you know, get some things done.
0: And you know, that's kinda of funny because I think this episode is gonna come out on November second. So as we speak to the current current political climate and everything, this might, you know, I have a feeling everyone is gonna be on the edge of their seat no matter no matter what they're hoping for on November third. So yeah, it's hard not <laughs> to have
1: that in mind. Yeah, serious. <laughs> yeah, Seriously. Maybe this
2: will be a way for everyone to get their mind off of it and think about art and culture and and not think about the next day and all that will come with it. Well, in terms of your background, I know that you've lived and worked and traveled to many different countries, but specifically, we wanted to hone in on your experience working and specifically teaching when in Poland, and I believe it was in Poznan. or if, Posen. is that how you, Posen? okay, thank Posen you. The oh,
1: then like that.
2: Okay, okay. That's, Sorry. I need to work on that. No, it's, I appreciate it. I'm a language person myself, so that's always good to learn. But if you could elaborate on why you ended up going there and why you specifically decided upon teaching and kind of what the process was of getting there, we'd love to hear kind of that background and track through that story.
1: Great, great. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that. Uh, I'll I'll start by backing up one country, and that was prior to being in Poland. I had gone to Japan, as actually many people did at that time, around 1990, 91, to teach English. It was a time when the Japanese economy was really buzzing, and I had a, a friend in the business, ESL business, and he got me a great apartment, great job in Osaka. So I was there. And then the story gets slightly complicated. But in the course of doing all of that and showing my work, I had my first solo show in, um, in Japan at that time while I was do- also at the, still doing the same thing, teaching and creating work. I was involved in a long distance relationship and that person turned out to be my fiance <laughs> after some time. And she, of all places, lived in Poznan. So, and was from there. What happened was that when I left Japan, instead of flying back to California, I flew on to Poznan. And so that's how I got there. And then I arrived. Uh, to place it in time around uh, 91, 91, 92, without any plan at all, which is often the way I've found I've arrived places. And it, it kind of worked out, but I was interested in art. And fortunately I was surrounded by people through um, my fiance and then we got married there and my wife, uh, surrounded by people who are involved in the university. The, the I don't know if you know, the Adam Mitskiewicz University there is a big research University, and then there's also the, the art school, which is separate from that, which also has a long, a long history. So it's a, a town of, of students, of graduate work, professional level, art production, not so much crafts, more conceptual work at that point. And so that felt good. I was, I was in the right place for my interests. And then, know, just to just give a broad overview, I taught at uh, Adam Mickiewicz because I had a background in English. So I was able to teach a kind of literature class for the master's degree students there who were quite advanced. It was not at all like the ESL work I was doing in Japan. This was more of a seminar where we, we looked at a short story, we discussed it, students were bored, I tried to keep them interested, but their English was excellent. And I did that work for a bit. And also there's so many directions to go here, but you can redirect me if you want, but I'll talk a little bit about the economics because you were talking about the fact. That were not long after 1989. And of course, prior to that, Poland was in the Eastern Bloc. So you had an economy that was managed by the state. And you had, for example, university salary came out to about $200 a month. Well, the prices were going Western very quickly. IKEA was opening there were other restaurants there were stores and also just basic essentials were starting to reach western levels so people were struggling i was fortunate because i would i could tutor and so i could tutor to the the budding capitalist children and i could charge you know a decent amount Uh, for just whatever it was uh, in English, but they wanted their students to be tutored in English. And that that worked out for me economically. And also there was this happenstance that I was showing quite a bit and selling some artwork. So I I gave up the university gig of working with the graduate students. And I mostly focused on painting and then supplementing that income with, with tutoring but I, I saw, you know, there was a, a lot of dark humor about the circumstance where I would be having you know, at somebody's house and they a professor at Miskevich University and they'd say, okay, so this month I'm either going to buy a book or <laughs> they were talking about what to do with their monthly salary. And it was just absurd. And the way they were able to stay in their housing, and which was a similar situation that I had, was that there were legacy housing situations provided by the state and that allowed you a place to live, but it didn't really allow you to live well on a university salary at least. So it was a period of great transition and it wasn't easy for most people. And I met you know, at least one of the a young man who was doing trading oil through Russia. So he was involved in a very high level type of commerce trading. And, you know, he was what we would consider filthy rich in any global context. And But he was, you know, one of the, he was doing even well for the new class of capitalists. But um, there were those people as well who had a, an understanding and maybe an education and a temperament that allowed them to be sharks in a system. System that that benefited those people that were. Please direct me the way you would like.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just thinking. Yeah, in a system where sometimes to be the first one out there can be the most lucrative as well, and be the most profitable, maybe at the expense of people who are not as quick as you are. I'm glad that you've provided this economic context, and I actually want to provide a little bit more context that we oftentimes think the basis of the Europe- what is now the European Union was formed back in the 1950s, but the European Union itself was not formed in that name until 1992 or technically 1993, and Poland did not become a part of it until, I think, 2004. I think something else to contextualize for people who were not traveling at that time is now we have things like the Schengen zone and these different visa requirements there was a lot of change in the 2000s both certainly in the United States but also in Europe around visa and, and visas and how you obtain visas so i'm really curious to know where what was your visa situation you you got there without a plan did you have you did you have three months before you had to get a visa of sorts?
1: Where- no, I, I I think, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't research this. And Unfortunately, when I'm speaking about things that were nearly 30 years ago, even if they're about my own life, I have to research them these days. What sure. did I do?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but in, my understanding was that at that time, the U.S. was very much trying to encourage commerce with poland along with a number of other countries and you could pretty much just show up and do whatever you wanted and check in and you know they're like oh you're here okay great so that's my my (laughs) because on the other side i mean in 2005 i went to i went to moscow and i remember getting the visa for that was just torture and expensive in the end which is how you avoid the torture (laughs) <laughs> um, right but that was definitely not the case I, I was it was completely encouraged you know long-term stays were encouraged i didn't need to make a distinction between being there on vacation or working i didn't have to do any of those things and you know i ended up the the consulate you know it was such a closed community too and you know i would meet regularly with the counselor there we'd go have dinner or whatever and so it, it was all a very um tight-knit and easily, everything was easily accessible in terms of paperwork.
2: That's really interesting because it's such a juxtaposition to what a lot of people experience today. And like you said, even going to to Moscow, Quite different. But I'm curious when you were also talking about the economics of it all and the dark humor that the professors had and the faculty had about what they could buy and what they couldn't, was the openness of the economy and capitalism something that most people were, you know, there was a buzz about or they were excited about? Or was it more of a worry of how were they going to convert into this new westernized capitalism and the prices that came along with that and how that would all work out?
1: Right. And that's that's a good question. Part of, because it's a university town, and I don't think people there were ever behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, they they were well-read. They understood what was happening. They could see, you know, and I was, you know, granted, I was working with and spending time with people who, you know, made a point of being well-read and and, and studying kind of the, not necessarily the global economy but the global situation. So they weren't thrilled about anything related to it. And and also because I was not working with except with these exceptions of people that I would meet either through tutoring or a few individuals who just happened to be friends of friends who were engaged in this kind of go go uh, mentality of you know we we're, we're going to be the the princes of the of the state we're going to earn millions. Most of the folks being artists and academics had other priorities that I knew. So they knew what was happening. They knew what was coming. They were pretty convinced that the country and the culture were not going to manage the transition smoothly, and they were correct. And it was, I would say, not a, a period of of great optimism about the the oncoming economic difficulties that they saw and that they were... Living through, you know, they w- were not at all thrilled about their situation in 88 either. So it, it was a, a difficult period. I'll, I'll mention, because it does tie to the politics, I mean, Lech Walesa, Lech Walesa was the president at that time. So we're talking about the solidarity movement, this kind of populist workers' movement, which sounding familiar had al- aligned itself as it would with the Catholic Church. And Again, there were, I mean, at this time, this was a debate over abortion rights, and there were movements away from personal freedom for women. So among academics, as you might imagine, there was a a great deal of concern, and there was a great deal of animosity towards the Catholic Church as an organization. And, you know, there'd be statistics thrown around that, oh, it's all okay in Poland because you know, 96% of the populace is Catholic. Well, what wasn't mentioned in those statistics is you couldn't leave the church. And I, I knew people that tried, <laughs> they just wouldn't let you go. So so all of this is tied in with the political reality that there's no faith in the leader who's, who's a populist and kind of catering catering to the church. And there's not really a plan for how to transition. And so people who had money are just buying, they're buying property, they're buying goods, um, they're creating circumstances for themselves, and the rest were just wondering how they would keep it all afloat.
0: Thank you for providing all of this context. What then, I mean, by this point, you were graduated, so I, I won't put an age on you specifically, but Clearly, you'd grown up probably with a certain idea, at least being fed to you about what you might Mm -hmm. find in a place like Poland or anywhere that was on the eastern side of the Iron Curtain. What were you expecting to find knowing that you were going there? And did it, you know, did it live up to your expectations? What was surprising to you? What was not
1: Yes. Remember, Reagan was. Ah, yes. (laughs) Was, was, was a president that I contended with, well, not personally, but uh, <laughs> while in, in college. I, I'd say California noir was the cloud I grew up under. Not, in, I, not, not, just, not just, I wouldn't say it's just a personality. It, it's, you know, era of punk. I was, I was 25, 26 when I was, I was there in, in Poland. So the, there was a lot of dissatisfaction Era, era of um, AIDS. And so I think there was a, a pretty clear understanding among youth that the, the federal government was, was not doing all that it could do for the people. As far as opportunities for individuals, you know, California has always been very expensive, right? So just going it alone here there were a lot of parallels in that I mean the the problems in, in trying to find support from a government that obviously wasn't going to provide it and then finding yourself somewhat uh, outside of the the dominant system of commerce which which I think academics were also in in, in the West and in california as as in Poland what I particularly liked what what On the positive side, I felt that the community of artists connected through the university and the art school there had a way of working. I mean, they had no resources except their brains and their academic positions or whatever else they did. So people easily lived together. Artists lived together in in groups. We lived in a shared house before we moved to, we moved to a more government style flat at one time. But before that, we lived in a shared house. And, you know, you're living with, you know, two conceptual artists. And so you talk about what they're doing. They're going off to some other town to do an installation. And talk about why they're doing that, and they're working with their students, they're talking about their students, uh, they're organizing exhibitions, which I was part of, organizing, organizing exhibitions for other people. And all of that activity was quite far removed from commerce. I did get involved in the more commercial side of selling work, but they were, uh, particularly with the conceptual work, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Italian Art Povera movement, installation, kind of raw materials, things that you have at hand. Much of the work came out of that, not directly out of that tradition, but if you're just looking for a parallel tradition. So stones, you know, using things to create work like that. I I felt they, in a way, were at a disadvantage economically because it was very difficult for them to travel because they didn't have money. But they had a clear idea of why they were doing what they were doing. And it didn't get confused with having to promote it to a gallery X, Y, or Z. Now, I, since I was painting, I was a little more, I was a little less highbrow than what <laughs> they were doing. I, I was able to appeal to some of the galleries in town who were selling work, particularly to Germans who were coming over. I mean, Berlin was close by. It was Potsdam's halfway between Warsaw and Berlin. And so that's the way I was able to, to sell some work. Talking about, again, labor and money and politics and and then Germany, I mean, of course, Germany, and, and you can speak to this, Kelly, I'm sure, was having its integration issues with the East and the West. And we did take field trips to Berlin, for example, to see art exhibitions there. And a couple of things came out of that. One was that workers from Poland who were trying to go to Germany to do some work, were definitely not welcomed so there were problems of you know bus loads of of people from poland going to germany and having rocks thrown at them and so it was it was clear that this you know reunification and and openness wasn't working equally for for everybody and people who had less were kind of brawling a little bit with each other and, and that was accentuated by being from different countries so for example one of the pieces one of the artists that i knew we went to a berlin museum to see a show of, of work and he did a an impromptu installation piece called polish stones where he piled a bunch of stones at the top of this grand staircase as a reference to the fact that people were getting stoned <laughs> from, I mean, not the fun kind. People were having rocks thrown at them as they came over from Poland. So this was what the kind of thing that was on people's minds. So you had talked about the, the graffiti on the Berlin Wall in one of our correspondents, that, that kind of, that kind of, poppy, visual, visually oriented work was really not the thread going through the artists in in Poznan. But I would make a parallel to that and the magazine uh, NIE, N-I-E, meaning No, which started in 1990, which was a very important left-wing magazine, both opposed to the right-wing strains in the government and to the Catholic Church, importantly. So they were charged with pornography because trying to sway people not to support an anti-abortion law, they published an image of a nude couple. They weren't engaged in sex, but that was a suggestion that they were headed that direction and pretty much made a plea to the public that, you know, this could be anybody and, you know, you could end up being in legal trouble of a kind that you're not used to if you engage in this. So think about it. Following that, because they were they were charged with pornography and i think they they lost the case there was just a, a fantastic cover which i think related more to the kind of pop art sensibility of the berlin wall and also to the kind of humor that was used in opposition to forces of government and and church and state um where the the publisher jersey urban is an american pronunciation of his name put two plucked chickens together in a suggestive pose since the way you and you know it seems like a silly joke but and, and it reminds me a little bit of where we seem to be heading now where where things that you would brush off is kind of oh that's almost juvenile humor because of the tension and the real world consequences of the issues at play suddenly that kind of humor has a real place it is funny <laughs> because people are going to jail people are being arrested And you got to use those plucked chickens to make your point. So that struck me as a a kind of tradition, a more literary tradition, or it also related to pop magazines, that that was interesting, but a different direction than the more highbrow conceptual work, which was more of a global approach to conceptual work that was coming out of Poznan. Um, Magdalena Abakanovich, I don't know if you know this name, you can look her up, international figure. She among others came out of this the pose and art school. They have they had quite a, a tradition there. Did I at all answer a question that may or may not have been asked? Yes.
2: <laughs> that no, that was very interesting to learn about and then also connecting it to the thread of I think the art especially to younger generations of, or this imagery of the Berlin Wall and the graffiti and things like that. It's like that's what we kind of imagine of the juxtaposition, the different sides of each block and how that kind of unraveled after that. So hearing how even just you know one town and had its own tradition that was still international based on its presence of being more university town, I think, gives you a better idea of the type of people you were living with and around um, within and how you kind of molded, engaged in that as an artist yourself. I am curious as well, going back to your time in Japan too, and comparing it to then being an artist there and also teaching, um, and then doing the same thing in Poland. How was that in terms of being in a booming economy, as you said, in Japan, and being an artist and trying to sell? And then, you know, did you feel drawn to try to sell in Poland as well? Or was that just because you had that art that was more acceptable to the to the actual galleries or was you did you feel really drawn to try to join the movement of the locals in poland and focus less on the ability to sell even though you had it just based on what was happening in that time
1: in in japan i was paid quite well for doing nonsense and by nonsense i don't mean teaching i mean i was only teaching like two days a week, and the rest of the time, I was supposed to sit at a desk in view of the front entrance and look like an international teacher so that new students would sign up. So I read the newspaper three days a week and taught two days. And then... That sounds like a nice life. It was was actually quite nice. Uh, (laughs) It was the benefit of being in a, a real, a real boom. In terms of the art, I didn't... And that may have been... Sometimes it's unclear to me what, and all of this is is from a very individual perspective, obviously. So I think a lot of my experience was personality driven and someone else would have had a very different experience. And this is to say that I went to art galleries in Osaka, but I didn't. Engage with a a community of artists in in the way that I I did in Poznan, but I think that was mostly my fault. I did I did engage in some meditation practice, and I, I went to and got training through a temple that offered these this kind of training. So I did do that, but as far as showing there in the north in Hokkaido. I had a connection and I did have a show there, but that was purely because someone on the West Coast had a connection there long standing and was able to put together an exhibition. But when I showed in the Osaka area, I just went gallery to gallery and said, I'm interested in showing, will you do it? And finally, I think one woman who had a very nice gallery in Toyonaka took pity on me and said, I'm afraid I'm going to have to see this guy more if I don't say yes than if I say no. (laughs) Or sorry, I got that backwards. But anyway, she said yes in a way to get rid of me. Uh, But it turned out to be a good show. It was a good show. And I sold work there too, but I didn't need the money. I, I was getting paid quite well. Even though I was spending it all on food and booze, it was just Osaka's still, I think, a tremendous town to eat in. On top of that, just to add one little note Osaka's famous also for its nightlife. And I don't want to say that the guy I worked for who owned all this property and also happened to own this language school was. A gangster but he lived the lifestyle so every once in a while he would he would take me out just to show me something really extravagant so we'd go to clubs which were you know for example a a club featuring trans women which at the time you know was not only unusual but very expensive and things like this or a sushi restaurant where you know there were there was seating for eight Or, you know, things like this. But I I did get to see, I mean, this was interesting in in Japan, a little bit of an aside, but the kind of deference that was paid to this guy, either as just being very wealthy or because of his other connections, But I do remember walking into a restaurant with him with a group of eight or so, and there weren't that many tables. And the table for eight got up mid-meal and left, and then we took their place. And so with lots of apologizing for having been there before him and eating. So something was going on. Um,
0: Have you ever read (laughs) Pachinko? Have you read the book?
1: Oh, I have not read the book. No, no, no.
0: It's very good. Very good work of historical fiction that kind of delves into that world a little bit. Yeah, um, no,
1: it, was, it was fascinating. But to get back to the selling the art, when I was in Poznan, I, I did need the money because like I said, I mean, teaching, even teaching the rich kids wasn't that lucrative. So everything I sold, I really did need to use for living. So there it was more in Japan. I just wanted to get things out there and I wanted people to see them in Poznan. I wanted that also, but I also wanted to earn a few bucks so I could make my way. We,
0: I asked before, what were your expectations? Were they met?
1: Maybe I didn't answer that. No, no, no. <laughs> no. I
0: think I, I think you did. And, and so, but what, what I'm curious about now is when was your? I guess to preface it first, though, when was the first time you left the United States?
1: Oh, that's a good question. First time I left the United States was probably, I mean, a trip to Mexico, which in California is fairly common to go to Mexico. So Canada, but these were more family vacation type trips. I didn't go anywhere further than that as part of a family vacation. The first time I went on my own, I did, my mother had been on a experiment in international living. I don't know if you know that organization, which is an exchange student, but more for summer programs. So you don't go and study, you just and often it's not a true exchange. You just go and people from other places come, but maybe not to your family. And, maybe, you know, there's no connection there between who's going and coming. But I ended up going, I ended up going to Switzerland. I, I still wonder about that. But anyway, <laughs> it was like the least adventurous place I, I could have gone. But there was some family connection. There's a branch of my family that has some connection to Switzerland. I think it just turned out to be convenient, i I think I'd wanted to go to North Africa, but I don't. Know, it was suggested my French wasn't that great, which was only the truth. <laughs> so what could I say? All
0: right, but uh, like you're I... German, you're Italian, or Switzerland. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that was that was the first extended trip. So I stayed with a family in Steinem Rhein in in Switzerland near Lake Lucerne. Yeah, so I, of, I uh, like out of high school. Yeah.
0: Well, I guess what I'm trying to get at is is thinking about. When, sometimes when we, we go somewhere for an extended period of time, we're studying abroad, we're going and living somewhere new, whatever it is, mm-hmm. that initial, the first time that we're exposed to something that's significantly, at least significantly enough, different from what we experience on our day to day and what our, we're, we're used to is we might be, you know, we might have lots of expectations, lots of thoughts of what is this going to be like? What is this going to look like? And then after the first time, maybe after the first two, depending on who you are, you start to realize I'm about to go to this new adventure. On this new adventure, kind of like you did, you had no plans. And when you went to Poland, uh, we think I'm. Who knows? Why have expectations? Because I have seen them be upended before. So I don't. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to set up the slate. So I'm just I. I mean, I think taking that into context that you were going to Poland because you were engaged to someone, so so they obviously probably had filled you in a little bit on what to expect too. And I'm just thinking, you know, about the comparison maybe between what you were expecting when you went to Osaka versus what you were expecting when you went to Poznan and mm-hmm. expectations, I guess, digging digging in deeper to that. Did, did any of that make sense?
1: <laughs> yeah, it does. I, I think I have a way to answer that. Um the, you know,
0: the like non-question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, when I was in, in Switzerland for the first time, I, w- I was 17. And, and so I, I think there was a kind of European glow to things. <laughs> you know? And that you know, only happens once, like you're suggesting. But then what that's become is, for example, last summer, I, I think I mentioned I was in Rotterdam to start a project uh, that I'm working on with a, a uh, Artist from Rotterdam, and there, to, the most exciting thing was was to meet him and to work on this project with someone who, yes, he has a, a different point of view and there's a different approach to doing art and particularly public art, and and that's all super exciting. But it's not just you know wandering through the public square and and looking at the market, right. right? And that's that's where I am now. Is is and I think it's one of the reasons I really enjoyed Osaka is that there was a lot going on outside of just. Being a tourist, and certainly I think it's the way I would recommend going to, to visit places. Something I, I can contrast the experience with the artist in Poznan with the, another experience, which is I started at NYU in the graduate program while I was in, in Poznan. And the way I was able to do that was to start in their program, which is in Venice during the summers. So for two summers while I was living in in Poland, I I went to Venice to work on a master's degree there. And I mean, Venice is Venice in that it's very tourist oriented for one thing. But also that program was large enough and there was enough going on with the program that it was really being with a bunch of Americans kind of on a stage set. You had to fight away from to get away from the group to to do something in Italy. I just uh, describe that as not as desirable <laughs> as being in a situation where you're forced to work, forced in a positive way to work with local folks and do things more directly with them rather than having it mediated.
0: Well, so now that we've we really dug into that expectation piece, now looking back, have you been to, and I'm going to branch this out a little bit, the original question was just, have you been to Poland since you were there, you know, in, okay. in the early '90s? But also, have you been to Osaka since then, and what has changed?
1: Yeah, I can't answer the question about Osaka or Poznan, but I can uh, talk about Berlin. And and before going into that, I I mean, Osaka definitely had maybe not a reversal, unfortunately, but they certainly. I mean, there was a moment when I was there when. The most expensive piece of real estate in Osaka just surpassed the most expensive piece of real estate in Tokyo for I don't know ten seconds or something, and it was a cause for just massive celebration. Right? I mean, this was <laughs> this kind of competition between the cities. But I know it's not that same it's not that same go go lifestyle anymore for those that were engaged in it. But Berlin, I went back to because I visited Berlin from poland I, i haven't been back to poland i don't know if i'm allowed in the country not the government but anyway the the trips to berlin gave me a pretty good idea when i was there and there it was very clear this split the old and particularly in the art world there were still buildings that were shattered you know just a mess they had all of the interesting very small upstart galleries in them And then there was the old established part of Western Berlin that had the old big money blue chip galleries going back in around 2015, maybe a little earlier than that. I have to look at my, my notes. Um, But anyway, it was well into the two thousands. I went back, you know, that wasn't so apparent. I stayed in what had been the East, but that wasn't so clear. And I had a show, you know, which would have been kind of, I, I organized an art exhibition in an area which would have been really much more fringe, but everything was much more homogenized by that time. So I was able to see that that difference, that rawness was gone, all those rough edges.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a great uh, comparison. It's very interesting, like Potsdam of Flats was barren when you would have gone there in the 90s. Um, or maybe they had frames of buildings or like the you know, the vision of whatever was going to be there. And by 2014, it was, and before that even, it was just these big screen screens. It was very odd.
1: Right, right. That yeah, was there in 2010. So just to be clear. Yeah, and it was already. Yeah, like.
0: I mean, even in just the last six years, I have a friend who is living there now. And she told me, she was like, you know, when we were there earlier, six, seven years ago, you could get a flat in this Particular Keats or neighborhood for this set amount of money, you know, is fairly cheap. But it, uh, it from from a, you know someone who had been living in New York City's perspective. But now you can't find that anymore. the The, the price has gone up and the the demand has grown.
2: I am curious. Overall, you've talked about especially going to places now, traveling internationally, possibly domestically as well, how things are different. They don't, it doesn't have the charm of just walking around the town square anymore through the market. Because, and you like going now to have, you know, a different purpose or to interact with the locals for whatever that purpose may be. When you look back now at your travel or how you want to travel in the future when we, we hopefully can someday soon, does that motivate you in a way to go to certain places or how does that impact your travel choices for work and, and or, you know, personal travel?
1: Yes, that's a good question. Thank you. There, there's still you know, just curiosity. So I, there are places I'd like to go that I don't know that much about, and there I'd like to find. <laughs> some people there to work with, just because I find that enhances the experience. And so that—that's one side of it. So that's just, uh, for example, my wife's mother is from Korea, and we haven't gone to Korea together. I, I was in Seoul back in the '90s for a little bit, and, and I know it's a much different city now. And you know, we'd like to go there to see it and to spend some time there and to eat a lot of Korean food. And <laughs> I'd love to have some kind of exhibition there and try to get that. I have worked with a gallery in Seoul before, but truth be told, would rather find a different one. And so that would be something else that I'd like to do at the same time, but not necessarily. I'd go there without any anything to do. But uh, on the other hand, they're also just, I like the idea of encountering people to work with and just letting that dictate where I end up. There's a, an artist out of Tijuana, he's he's American, but he lives in Tijuana, who was involved in a residency project outside of Mexico City. And I've been invited to go down there. And I really like working with him. It's in Michio Khan, so it's a little bit out. It's a, it's a bit out. And I know there's some challenges traveling there and working there uh, at the moment, but that'll be fantastic. So that'll be a nice combined I think there's still a lot. There are a lot of places that will have some magic <laughs> for me, the magic of the new. As you were speaking about, Kelly, where, I mean, you do have expectations in a way, even if they're vague, and, and then things happen. You're like, oh, I wouldn't have imagined that happening. Whatever it is, whatever. I find that being here in in California, commuting to work, I think I know what it's going to be like. <laughs> I'm surprised. So um, with international travel, it's it's that to a greater degree. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, Aaron.
2: No, I think you are. And also it made me think, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but the idea that's coming to mind for me, at least when you talk about this, is that art to you and probably to a lot of people that you've interacted with, it's kind of like the language that you are able to utilize, the common language in these different cultures. And that that allows you to kind of interact and build that community within those different locations that you may be in or even, you know, having these connections, uh, the triangular connections between places and people as well. So I don't know if that sounds something familiar to you in kind of a way of making an analogy out of it but to me i'm like i trying to think of how how you're able to build that community and it sounds like having kind common interest and the common understanding of these different the different art and how that interacts with the world and the politics and the religion and all of you know the world we live in
1: yes <laughs> And I think that's an excellent way to look at it. And in a way, it's it's very direct. I mean, for example, in Berlin, everyone, I mean, Berlin is, is, is so Western, but still people are looking at the same artists and many German art has been unduly or not has been quite influential in the 20th century and early 21st century. And so you could just be speaking to someone and you could do the old yes or no game with them. And if you say Richter yes and (laughs) they say Richter no and you say Polka and they say yes, well then you you know you're dealing with one kind of person and not another just based on which artist of the canon of, or the recent canon that you gravitate towards and that can be more effective than uh, maybe a, a communication with someone who doesn't have a shared interest of study i will say that was you mentioned the word language despite the work i do <laughs> i've always found acquiring language as a struggle and and in, 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 particularly when i was younger i think it had a lot to do with being a shy lad and which does not work when you're trying to speak a foreign language you You just need to get into it. So what I've gotten better at, for example, when traveling to Moscow, for example, is at least forcing myself to acquire basics and using whatever you've got when you can and I think that enhances your experience, not just because you're communicating, because people know you're flailing and they can understand what you're saying anyway, but that it opens up paths of communication with people that it show it, it signals an interest in, in culture, in their culture. And, and it does, you know, the more, I, I know you both speak other, well, I assume you both speak other languages, <laughs> but I just took that for granted. But you know, the, you learn so much about a culture uh, through the language. I have a, a friend that I speak weekly with now, who lives in—well, he lives in England. He doesn't live in London now; he lives in England. And he, his husband, lived in Berlin. They—he spent a lot of time there. And he said it wasn't until he became fluent in German that he really understood what was going on culturally. Some things that had been somewhat of a mystery to him. And I, I, I just couldn't emphasize that enough for people that are listening that are wondering whether they should bother learning a few words before they go somewhere. Yes.
0: <laughs> absolutely. I, I agree. I couldn't emphasize that more either. I Some people, I probably mentioned it on this podcast. I've met people who don't know what I'm talking about when I, when I say what I'm about to say and people who absolutely resonate with it, where it's like, if when you get to a certain point in a language, you don't necessarily have to be fluent, but it's like you unlock some other part of your personality that you didn't know was there. And all of a sudden you're, you're like exuding. For me, it's like, oh, it's another part of Kelly. <laughs> 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 that i was gonna i was going to ask you eric if you had uh learned those languages and then the other thing i wanted to ask you was if you ever went clubbing in berlin or in poland i'm not as familiar with the polish clubbing culture but i i have some concept of what it what was going on in berlin in the early 90s
1: right Right. And first, the language question. (laughs) I did study. I mean, I studied some Japanese. I studied some Polish, but I, I never made it a priority. And that would be one, you know, looking back saying, could have you spent an extra hour a week on that? Yeah, you could have spent an extra hour a week on that. That would have been better. So yes, to a degree. And then clubbing. No. And you know, This is just part of going back to the same thing I said about Osaka is I'm always impressed later when I look back at where I was at any particular time, how little I knew of what was going on. (laughs) It's like, wow, I thought I was out there and doing things. And, you know, I was the right age. I was in the right place. I I just didn't know. And it wasn't the crowd I was hanging out with also. That wasn't.
0: Yeah. It depends on their network,
1: thing.
0: right? And yeah. whatever that means and <laughs> your inner circle and what they're doing. And I can only imagine in a time where you did not have communication quite as instant as we have for the last 10 years or so, you could say 15 years, whatever, but I'm thinking about social media and, and sure, then you wouldn't know but, about no. those things necessarily as it's not like you're reading about it in the newspaper on the front page.
1: <laughs> yeah, and maybe I should maybe I should point to that just for a minute that I mean when I was in Poland there would be months they would go by without my speaking to a single family member or anyone in the states. I mean, it wasn't easy. You had to go you had to go to the post office to make an international call. I mean, there wasn't any other way to do it, right? You couldn't send an email, you could write a letter but
0: <laughs> well it's like our one of our previous guests Jasmine said she she was like this is the best time to be a student all the resources as much as you know we're still working on that in higher education and education in general in terms of trying to get even more resources and more access like it's only gotten better so. <laughs> taking- I also
1: just you had brought up that I was the oldest guest I wanted to make it worth your while. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, one question that we, we typically ask, and I'll throw it out there, is, um, what is something that you really appreciate about the last decade? In ter- and it could be technology related, but maybe it's not. Or, or what is something that you were nostalgic for Maybe if you went back to the early 90s?
1: I think there, there's something about being able to communicate regularly and in depth for example, with the, the artist in Rotterdam that I'm working with, there are periods where we'll write each other daily and just riff on each other's comments and different than a phone call. You know, th- th- we're working on projects so maybe there's a little light research involved, some suggesting something, annotating maybe someone else, his product. And and that's great. That's It's really nice to be able to sit down at, at one in the morning and go, hey, I wanna work on this and he's in Rotterdam, and we can do it.
0: Eric, we really appreciate having this conversation with you, and I think this is a really good kind of stopping point to wrap up for the episode. Thank you so much for sharing about your time, and we got to hear about both Poland and Japan and a couple of other places. Eric has been so many places. I was also really curious to know about how he lived off of $20 a day in Egypt or something like that for a month. So we'll ha- we'll probably have to invite you back sometime.
2: <laughs> yes, we can only scratch oh. the surface, but we wanted to dig in where we could about well, a lot of your experiences.
1: Thank you. I mean, of course it's fun to, to think about it. And I appreciate your having me on and um, I hope I was fair to, <laughs> fair to those people in my history <laughs> and also somewhat informative for your guests. So. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Most definitely. Thanks. Thanks everyone for listening. And that wraps up today's show.
2: Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope that the stories you heard today have inspired you and helped you to think about what intercultural experiences you'll seek next. Catch another story next Monday.
0: We are Generation Travel Radio. Keep thinking globally.